Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Chemically Speaking, the official podcast of the Royal Australian Chemical Institute. My name is Dr. Matt Griffith and I'll be your host for this new series where I'll be chatting with Australia's chemists to provoke thought and provide insights into the various trends and topics affecting the Australian chemistry landscape. Our team is excited to be launching this new podcast today, which will drop a new episode every month showcasing the thoughts of three different guests, each discussing a common theme from a different perspective. We'll be working hard to bring you content that is interesting, interactive and hopefully inspiring a one-stop shop to help you learn about how our nation's chemists are impacting the world, keep you on top of hot topics in chemistry, and make sure you're up to date with all the RACI events and initiatives that are run to support the professional community. We'd also love to hear back from you. If you have something you think would make a great topic of conversation, then jump on our website, www.raci.org.au backslash chemically speaking, and get in touch with us. What a perfect time it is to start thinking about and talking about all the big issues in chemistry. I really believe that the next few decades will be the most exciting time that we've ever experienced in science across all of its disciplines. The current and emerging generations of chemists will have the opportunity to shape the future of our world, not only through the work we do in our labs, our workshops, or in our classrooms, but also by engaging with and inspiring the non-scientific community, exposing them to how interesting, how relevant, and indeed how much fun our scientific work truly is. As we set out on this podcast journey, the question that kept popping up for us was how do we support Australia's chemists to achieve these aspirations? How do we know what the next hot topic or big problem of the future is going to be? To answer these types of questions, we often seek out the advice of our leaders. But have you ever wondered, how do leaders find these answers for themselves? In today's podcast, we explore this concept. What does the journey towards leadership involve? Now, if I asked you to name the best and worst leader that you've ever worked with, I bet it wouldn't take you long to come up with two names. In fact, you've probably already done it in your head just now. But what makes these people great or poor leaders? Such a simple question, and yet the answer is tricky to nail down. In today's podcast, I talk to three senior leaders in their respective fields of chemistry, who each face down one of the largest challenges in the chemistry workplaces of the 90s and 2000s, a lack of diversity. We'll discuss what drew them to careers in science, how they each became agents of change, collectively breaking through significant barriers and forging a new style of scientific leadership suited to the 21st century. Through their journeys, I hope that we can piece together some common themes that define the changing nature of chemistry leadership and provide some insight for all of you aspiring future leaders. It's a real pleasure to welcome our first guest today, Distinguished Professor Emeritus Francis Saparovich who is Deputy Director of the Bio21 Institute at the University of Melbourne. Frances was the first female to be appointed as a Professor of Chemistry in the entire state of Victoria, serving as the Head of School of Chemistry at Melbourne Uni for several years. She's also the first female chemist elected to the Australian Academy of Science, and in 2019, she was appointed an Officer of the Order of Australia for her distinguished service to science education 
particularly to biophysical chemistry as an academic and to young women scientists. Francis, welcome, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you here on Chemically Speaking. Well, thank you, Matthew. It's a pleasure. So to get us started today, could I get you to tell us briefly what attracted you to science in your younger days, particularly at a time when there were very few women choosing scientific vocations? So strictly speaking, what attracted me to science was the boys. I started doing science in high school. I enjoyed all the subjects and I didn't know what to choose. And I noticed that there were more boys, hardly any girls. In fact, I was the only girl in the physics class. So that's the real reason. But what I liked about science was working out how things worked. And that included both animate and inanimate objects. I see. Excellent. And so you you obviously do very well in your schooling days and you show this aptitude for science. Um, But despite an aptitude and receiving a scholarship to go to Sydney University, your first attempt at tertiary education doesn't quite go to plan. Why do you think you found it so difficult moving to Sydney? Well, I emigrated to Australia as a small child and my parents had only completed first and second grade in primary school. So I wasn't really understanding what a university was. And then growing up in Broken Hill, which is in outback New South Wales, coming to a big city was a big shock. And I think what the other thing was that at high school, I'd already done first and second year university maths and physics. So when I went to university, I found that boring as well. So I felt I didn't belong and I didn't find it exciting. I see. And so you you decide to see what else might be out there for you and you end up taking a job as a technician at CSIRO and at the same time you start a family. This gets you thinking about financial security, which is what draws you back to university studies a second time, which isn't a motivation we often hear about from our senior leaders. Does it surprise your peers when they find out that you might have taken on studies or a job purely motivated by financial security? Yes, they are surprised that I went into science for the money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, My career in science has been rewarding in so many ways and not just financially. I enjoy what I do. My parents worked so hard physically, their health suffered enormously and they'll pay far less and I get to do what's fun. I just can't believe that I'm so lucky to have such a job and I think it pays well. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's an amazing job and we often hear about the passion side but perhaps don't often hear so much about the other side which is that we need to earn a living along the way. So you're working at the CSIRO. Do you find much support for this challenge that you've taken on of studying, raising a family and keeping down a job all at the same time? Look, I'm grateful to CSRO. They gave me a day off a week, so I completed a TAFE certificate and I kept going and I wasn't able to take more time off. So initially my parents were against me studying, but they were pro me working. So even though I was studying, I called it all work. And when they saw that I got a raise with each qualification, they were impressed and eventually proud of me. So I was a single parent and I was lucky that my family was there to help me raise my son. It was hard working full-time and studying part-time after hours, but I kept going as I needed the money. There wasn't an option about dropping out. I felt I had to keep going. But I enjoyed learning and studying was like an after-work hobby but a bit more stressful but it was a hobby as well it it gave me enjoyment oh that's that's great to hear and i i guess that enjoyment brings you back to research and you you find your passion as you do a phd and then head over to the usa for a postdoctoral fellowship for a year 
And then along comes a job at the University of Melbourne that catches your eye. So this job is advertised as a senior lecturer slash reader. But firstly, for our younger listeners, can you just explain what is a reader? So at the University of Melbourne, a reader was between an associate professor and professor, but it denotes an academic with a distinguished reputation in research. And I was attracted to that when I found out what it was. But when I applied for the job, I didn't know what it was either. I see. And it turns out that you're successful in your interview and you're offered the job at the senior lecturer level, but with the highest salary of the reader. This really annoys you. Why was it important to you to go back to the university and fight for the title as well as the salary? I felt that recognition was more important than money. I worked hard and my supervisor, Steve Sorrow, got the credit as I was seen as a junior or even a secondary researcher. So I wanted that recognition. I also felt important to have more women as role models and that's how I became the first female reader in chemistry at Melbourne. What a fantastic success story and I guess a, a nice piece of advice out there for people to, to speak up and to, to push for what you feel you deserve. And so a few years go by and you're now promoted to professor, becoming the first female professor of chemistry in the state of Victoria. Looking back, this is obviously a huge moment for Australian chemistry academia as a whole, but did it feel momentous when it was happening to you in real time? It was momentous for me. I didn't feel that it was momentous for women in chemistry or the field itself. That came later, but at the time I never dreamed of being a professor and I thought it was amazing just to survive my first year in academia. So remember that, your first year is the worst one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can second that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I definitely second that, that opinion. So after your promotion, you continue to be successful. You go on and serve five years as the head of the School of Chemistry at the University of Melbourne. And then along comes another groundbreaking moment. You become the first female chemist ever elected to the Australian Academy of Science. But this time, things don't quite go to plan the first time around. So what happened on the first application and how did you react to it? To me, it was an honour just to be nominated and I did not expect to get up. But when I hear back that I was not a true chemist, I got some feedback, then I decided it was time for a change. And being a biophysical chemist, my work is multidisciplinary. It's hard to fit into a box. And what really helped is having an international network of potential influential referees who would have helped me get up. So thank you, everybody. And I'm just going to correct you, Matt. I was six years of head of school. Six long six, years. Six okay, years. I, I can imagine, <laughs> yes. One year as head of school must be worth three or four as a standard researcher. And you don't understand that until you've done it. So be nice to hear <laughs> Of course. Uh, and so in 2019, you're selected for a unique leadership program called Homeward Bound. Could you tell us a little bit about this program and what its aims are? Homeward Bounds, a leadership initiative for women with a background in STEM from around the world. So originally started in Australia, but there were more than 45 nationalities or 48 languages on our ship. So it's truly international. The program has four components and they are leadership, strategy, visibility and science. And it's delivered over a whole year. And then you have online content, you have face-to-face meetings, 
For example, we all met up in Ushuaia in Argentina for three or four days before the voyage, and then you have three weeks on ship going to Antarctica, which is the highlight. It really is. Um, I was attracted to the Antarctica part, and I learned so much from, first of all, being in a cohort of 100 women who are potentially leaders in a way, almost alpha females. So that's also interesting to be with a cohort of strong women. We were the fourth cohort, so the fifth one's been selected. And over 10 years, they expect to have a 1,000 women with backgrounds in STEM M because it also includes medicine. And the idea is that these women are going to lead and they're going to influence people and make decisions for the greater good of humanity. Excellent. Sounds fantastic. And, and so this is an exclusively female program. Is there anything you think that is specific to females in leadership that the program targets um, that, that you develop some confidence in after going on this program that you might not have had before going on the program? I think the bit that really appealed to me was uh, just looking at how women act and um, because, you know, normally we don't have a big group of women. And then you realise the importance of diversity. You can have too many women. So that's thing. <laughs> and, you, know, you really do need teams that are mixed. But the thing that I really learnt was to be true to myself and that's a good thing to do. You, you, I believed it before, but I believe far stronger now. Right. And so you've... You've been a senior leader in chemistry for many, many years now. I imagine you've been on similar types of leadership programs many times. Did you find this one, which is quite a unique leadership program, I would say, to be more valuable for your professional skill development or for your personal skill development? In reality, it's both, and I find it hard to separate uh, personal and professional, but I am at the end of my career and for me, it was more rewarding personally. So you can reflect back on what you've done and see see how it goes. But um, it's really strange to think that somebody in her mid to late 60s is still finding that she needs to grow and to learn. And um, it's a lifelong thing and it's a strength. It's a strength to know that you need to learn. It sounds like a very inspiring experience. So What's changed in the way that you approach your professional life as a result of programs like Homeward Bound or other leadership development programs? So I applied to Homeward Bound because I was retiring. I wanted to prepare myself for a new career. I, you know, I've done academia. My first part was being a student and a mother, and then I was an academic and researcher. And now I'm a retiree and you know, I'm going to have a change in life and this was going to be something that I would look forward to, you know, going to Antarctica, but also prepare myself for a new career. Hard to believe, but I'm naturally a retiring person and I have to force myself to get out there and to be seen. <laughs> and Homeward Bound has helped me realise also that vulnerability is a strength, just as I mentioned before, being genuine and being true to yourself is very important. But um, Homeward Bound has made me think carefully about what I'm going to do with the rest of my life and I'd like to influence people, not really lead up, but to influence people to make a difference while you're on this planet and make a difference for the good. Fantastic. I love the sentiment. It's interesting to hear you say that it takes you a little bit of thinking and a little bit of time to get your courage up to, to put yourself out there because a key part of your career seems to be the way that 
you've very successfully built up these networks and had a lot of involvement in professional bodies, including, of course, we should note several years as the general treasurer for the RACI. So how important are these networks and how do you start to become involved with them as a junior scientist? So I, can't, I cannot recall who said that invisibility is not a superpower. <laughs> and women are often encouraged not to be seen. So I've had to force myself to be seen because I realised the importance of that in science. If they don't know you, you have to work mm. extra hard to prove sure. that you're good at what you're doing. So being involved in professional societies mm. is a way of being seen and also influencing both the society and the discipline. As you come to the cusp of, of retiring on this very successful career, what would you say is the single most important piece of advice you could give to somebody who's starting out their career in chemistry? I don't want to be negative, but it's going to be hard. <laughs> <laughs> and you may not succeed, but if you love what you do, then that is a form of reward. So keep your options open and be prepared to seize opportunities, but don't underestimate how difficult mm. it's going to be. Hard in what way? It depends, you know, but if you're an academic, right, we apply for grants and most of the time you get rejected. You write papers and most of the times they're sent back for a route. But, you know, you always feel like you're being judged and then you're letting yourself down. But, you you know, wait 24 hours and fight Yeah, that, that resiliency <laughs> is, is definitely a key thing that you need to build in in science. And so if I was to transport you back to your youth and you had a chance to start it all over again, what do you think would be the two or three biggest challenges or opportunities facing the younger generation of Australian chemists that you'd like to take on? Today there's far more chemists than there were when I started out. The lack of experience is a challenge when you start any careers and finding an opportunity to get, to get that experience is becoming even more challenging as we have a higher and higher proportion of graduates in the workforce. So I do encourage postgraduate studies or internships because that's a way of getting one-on-one experience and getting known. These people are going to provide you with references. But it's also important to get a network of mentors and peers to support you. Make sure that you present a professional online presence and show your passion for chemistry. Remember that enthusiasm is contagious and we can always teach you more but if you haven't got the enthusiasm, it's hard to take somebody on. That's a great sentiment. I can, I can definitely feel the enthusiasm coming through from you right now, and I think it's, it's inspiring. And so I guess on behalf of the RACI and Chemically Speaking, Francis, it's been a pleasure, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Matthew. It's a pleasure. Welcome back to this episode of Chemically Speaking. I'm Dr. Matt Griffith, and today we're discussing the changing chemistry of leadership. Our second guest today is Associate Professor Danielle Skrapita, who works at the University of Wollongong. Danielle was first inspired to pursue a career in chemistry by an enthusiastic high school teacher and has since built up an impressive body of work developing bio-inspired drugs for cancer treatment. She is currently the Deputy Director of the Molecular Horizons Institute at UOW and has been a member of the RACI for 25 years and a leading voice for increased diversity in senior roles at Australian universities. Danielle, thank you for joining us today on Chemically Speaking. Thank you so much, Matthew. 
Now, you were drawn to a career in chemistry in your senior school years due to a particularly great teacher. Could you tell us why this teacher made chemistry stand out for you amongst all of the other subjects? Yeah, certainly. I think the thing that stands out the most is encouragement. The teacher, her name was Mrs. Zillman. She was super encouraging. She was invested in me, I felt, as an individual. She asked me questions about where I was going to take chemistry in the future. She could see I had a passion for chemistry and she really encouraged it. Uh, so from a very early age in your scientific career, leadership and mentorship is, is very important to you. You then enter university in the 1990s and very quickly notice something about all of the mentors and senior academics, and that is that there's no women amongst them. What was your reaction to this? My first reaction was shock because I'd come from a girls' school. I had these amazing female mentors, particularly in chemistry. Uh, I was enrolled in a Bachelor of Science Engineering. So the subjects I was doing at uni were chemistry, maths, physics, engineering. And at that time, there wasn't a single female academic at the uni where I was. It would be another 10 years before Australia got its first professor in chemistry. And that was Margaret Scheel and Mary Garson were some of those early professors. So that was a real shock at the time. And then shock was sort of replaced by sadness because I could see that we, you know, both myself and my other fellow female students didn't have any role models. There wasn't really anyone that we could readily aspire to be. And that was, you know, a real turning point where I already started to think about academia and put myself on that path and just thought that, look, I can sit here and complain there's no women or I can try to be one of those role models in the future. And so you've used this to drive you and you move on to complete a PhD at ANU and then two postdoctoral positions in Italy and Germany, which really set the course for your career. What fields of research caught your attention? So my first postdoc after my PhD was in the area of marine natural products chemistry. That was leading on from a PhD in biomimetic chemistry. I've always been inspired by chemistry and nature around us. And I think that nature is our greatest scientist. Uh, the second area that I moved into was a new area for me. It was glycobiology, and that's become a new passion of mine as well. You know, when two cells come together, it's the, the glycans at the tips of the cells that are meeting for that first time and having an interaction. I think we're still understanding about that. It's really fascinating for me. Sound amazing. And so after these postdocs, you've developed this career profile in these two major areas, and you have the opportunity to move to the University of Wollongong. And along comes a really unique opportunity. You find yourself part of a team collaborating with the oil and gas industry, heading out to drilling rigs to study deep sea organisms. Could you tell us a little bit about this project and why you were asked to be a part of it? Sure. This was fascinating. It was absolutely amazing. It was an opportunity to connect up with oil and gas industry, to use their remotely operated vehicles, so their underwater robotics, to explore the ocean floor from 100 metres to 1,500 metres depth. We often say we know more about the moon than we do about our own ocean floor. Uh, I was the only chemist on board, so it was predominantly a team of biologists. We were mapping the seafloor, taking 3D videos, reconstructions, sampling, a totally incredible experience. We had to train to work in that offshore environment and also a really great opportunity to interact with the industry, with the crew on board. Uh, absolutely fascinating. It sounds like a fantastic opportunity, particularly from an outreach perspective. And this is something I guess that is, is echoed throughout your career. And part of uh, the reason that you've also been selected recently to participate in the Homeward Bound Leadership Program. So we heard a, 
a little bit about this program from Francis earlier. Why do you think programs like this are so important? I think for me, there's really a new leadership style on the horizon that I'm very excited to see. And that is one that's more about authenticity, values-based leadership. And what that means is that you act and the words that come out of your mouth are aligned with what's in your heart. And I think at the moment we see a great example of that with Jacinda Arden. And for too long, particularly for women, um, we've been told, you know, play the game, be more strategic, lean in, smile, laugh at the boys' jokes. And I just don't think that cuts it anymore. We really should be celebrating and valuing diversity, what women and other groups have to bring to the table. For me, that's the really important part of these programs that we start to look at a new leadership style and what it brings. Right. So just learning to have the confidence in being authentic. And if you are who you are, then you will be a good leader. Absolutely right. You know, be yourself. I think for so long we women had to mould into become something different and now it's about being yourself, you know, for society to value those different aspects and the diversity and I think that way you have, you make better decisions that are more equitable for the wider community, for the wider workforce. So, yeah, absolutely learn about yourself, be yourself and uh, let's value those differences. Sounds fantastic. And so what do you think stands out? about Homeward Bound compared to other leadership programs that you may have been a part of? Absolutely diversity. So there's 100 women that are involved each year in that program. This is the sixth year that it will be running, the, the one that I'm involved in. There's 15 women selected from Australia, 85 from across the world. And it's not just that sort of geographic diversity, but also the science. So we've got space explorers, Antarctic scientists, climate change activists, such a diverse range of scientists on board from all parts of the world. And I just love to learn about their new stories, hear their experiences. And that helps me develop, like, oh, my eyes more and to, to develop my own leadership style by being more aware of different people's lived experiences. So I'm so excited to be joining with really diverse group women from across the world, bursting with excitement. You can probably hear it in my voice. I absolutely can. It sounds like a fantastic program and perhaps quite an advanced leadership program. So some of the other programs that you've been a part of throughout your career, are they more focused on personal development and inward reflection? You know, I think this one and, and one that I've been on just recently as well are really about um, understanding your own leadership style, certainly looking inwards at yourself. And there's a great uh, quote, actually, I've got it on the wall in front of me, which says, uh, yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I'm wise, so I'm changing myself. So I think we really need to start with ourselves. But I think what's really important too is to think about the impact we have and the legacy that we leave behind. Mm, fantastic. And so I, I guess a part of leaving this mark behind is serving on, on various committees and professional bodies uh, within your field. And so you've done this throughout your career, including 25 years with the RACI, where you've just been appointed as a fellow. So congratulations on that front. Thank you. Why do you think these professional bodies are so important to your career development? Again, it comes back to role models, I think, as well. You know, the old sort of adage that you can't be what you can't see. But going back to my early days at university when there were a few women in those leadership roles, I think it's really important that women and not just women, but all groups can see reflections of themselves in those high positions, CEOs, presidents. It's not just about role modeling, but it's about 
better decision making as well and making sure that those decisions benefit everyone. So I think it's really important and particularly as people become more senior, we need to have a whole cross-representation, but it's what you have to give back to society that you go on to these committees and, and help out what you can. And then you step away as well and let the next gen join. So you make a space at that table, but you need to learn to leave the table at the right time too. I think that's a fantastic sentiment, often not echoed by perhaps some of our senior leaders. And so now you are finding yourself in quite a senior position as the Deputy Director of the Molecular Horizons Research Institute at UOW. With this senior role, you must get to help out a lot of the younger future stars that come through the ranks. What event in your mentoring relationship with someone like this would make you think, yeah, my job here is done, it's time to step away? Yeah, I'm seeing amazing people, you know, so inspiring to see these people. So I think my job is done when we better accommodate things like career interruptions so that those people that are coming through now um, have a better life perhaps than what we did in terms of more family-friendly arrangements and also any sort of interruption, maternity, health, there are various reasons that you might care a responsibility. And so I think we really need to accommodate that as a society. But also, again, that those people coming through can make it all the way to the very top. So my job is done when I look at the highest table in various organizations, the decision makers, and when those decision makers reflect the broader society and the broader workforce, then my job is done. And I can tell you that we're still a long way from that. So we're making good progress, but we've got a long way to go still. Excellent. It's good to hear that we are making progress. And so I'm sure as part of this process, you've had many discussions with younger scientists around career directions. So what do you think are two or three emerging areas that will shape the future of the chemical sciences? For me, it comes back to I just can't get past my love of glycobiology. So I think (laughs) understanding more about glycobiology is going to have a huge impact on the chemical sciences as well, because I feel that we're really just at the tip of the iceberg in that field. There is so much more to discover. Uh, Again, another bias coming through, my love of sort of natural products or chemistry in nature. I think, again, we need to look back. There's a lot of bio-inspired materials now. So things like wound dressings that incorporate algal components, oligosaccharides and things like that. I still think we have a really long way to go in understanding the natural chemistry around us. There's no doubt that AI is going to play a role, but I think it's really important that we monitor potential biases that get introduced through AI. We have to feed in data sets and those data sets are based on existing scenario. I always think it's not artificial imagination. We can't imagine a new future yet with AI. We need to tread cautiously around AI, but it will no doubt play a big role. Wow, those definitely are some really exciting areas for the future. Well, Danielle, on behalf of all of us here at the RACI and Chemically Speaking, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Great. Thank you so much, Matthew, all your work on it. It's lovely. Welcome back. You're listening to Chemically Speaking, and today's episode is analyzing the changing chemistry of leadership. I'm Dr. Matt Griffith, and our final guest today that I'll be chatting with is Tanya Notaris, who is the founder and managing director of EnviroLab Group. Tanya has 30 years of practical experience in the chemical sciences with a focus on the analysis of contamination in the environment, including hazardous materials, petrochemicals, and pharmaceuticals. 
With fierce determination and a passion for helping others, Tanya gives back to science and particularly the chemistry profession by supporting both the RACI and the career development of EnviroLab staff. Tanya, it's a pleasure to have you on Chemically Speaking today. Thank you. Your connection with chemistry came very early in life through helping your brother with his home experiments. What was it about these activities that made you want to be involved? Well, my brother had a strong interest in science and photography, and I'd help him with the props whilst he took photos using a film camera. Uh, He then developed the film in his lab and used the photos to calculate or verify scientific theories. And his passion and interest in the sciences rubbed off on me. And it was always interesting to watch him investigate theories. So I think having a role model played a large part in my choice of subjects at high school and consequently at uni. And although we both had interests in science, my brother forged a career in academia and research, while I preferred a more hands-on approach in industry. Excellent, excellent. So it's great that you've got that role model early in life and you go to school and are a very capable student, but it's really when you head into your tertiary studies that you start to find this passion for a career in science and you complete a sandwich degree, which is something that we don't hear much about anymore. What is this degree and what does it involve? Well, I completed my undergraduate degree at UTS in 1988, and that was back in the good old days when education was free and uh, sandwich degrees were readily available. And a sandwich degree is a degree that has a one-year industry placement sandwiched between coursework. So in my case, I completed two years of coursework before undertaking one year of industry placement, which was at ICI in Matraville, and then returned to university to complete my fourth and final year of coursework. And the benefits, you know, were gaining practical hands-on experience, obviously, which enhanced my employability. And the other upside was that my marks improved in my final year as everything just seemed to make more sense and I could see the applicability of what I learned. And I really firmly believe that the sandwich degree kickstarted my career as a chemist as I was really, you know, employable after having one year of practical experience. It's definitely, I think, a course that should be offered more here. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. And and I guess you've, you've touched on some of these issues. My, my question was going to say that you, you find yourself very quickly back in an industry job after completing university, finding yourself in this field where you're now forging a career in contamination testing. Do you think the unique training you get from your sandwich mm-hmm. degree helped this transition into employment? Oh, definitely. So I, you know, no doubt that my industry placement helped with their transition. And then when I finished my last year of uni, you know, I was employed as an analytical development chemist straight away, which I found was a great job. That was in the pharmaceutical industry, but I found that distance was too hard for me to manage. So I ended up looking for a job closer to home. And um, in my sandwich year, I uh, it was at a petrochemical company and I had the opportunity in that year to work on different sites and I conducted you know, gas testing, water testing, physical testing of plastics and I took samples on ships and on the plant. And when a job came up in Mascot, I applied for it. It was as a marine surveyor and chemist at, at a company called Inchcape. Obviously, the experience that I had during my sandwich year ticked a lot of the boxes for my employment there and consequently became the first female marine surveyor in Australia. And I performed all the chemical testing at the mascot laboratory. 
Fantastic. And so, as you've mentioned, you, you find yourself in workplaces which are very male-dominated environments, but nonetheless, you quickly progress through the ranks to a management position in your mid-20s. Did you find much support from your colleagues in these early days? The petrochemical and shipping industry were heavily male-dominated. However, I'd never encountered any issues in those industries. Um, I always felt supported and was fairly treated and rewarded, but perhaps being a female in that environment had its advantages as the men were always helpful and respectful. Um, but I noticed the changes when I moved to another company. It was when Inchcape sold part of the business and then I transitioned from the petrochemical to the environmental sector and a new employer. That was in 1994 or after the birth of my first child. It was with this business that I noticed the disparity in pay and benefits between males and females. So as an example, you know, I was entitled to a company car as part of my job, but a male manager would receive a new car and I would only receive his secondhand car. You know, we were of equal standing. So, and I would raise that with my manager and I did so for many years, but it took a long time to get some equality there. Yeah, right. So it sounds like... The early days were fantastic and, and very collegiate, but as you progress to more senior roles and perhaps hit the corporate culture, this is where you start to experience some barriers in the way of what you want to achieve. And what was it that started to frustrate you about this point in your career and how did you react to these frustrations? So I guess over the years, you know, I tried to make a difference and try to affect change. And I think the inability to make the changes in my workplace just started to frustrate me. So I was a, essentially a manager that wasn't allowed to manage. So even though the laboratory had high year-on-year growth and profit, I wasn't allowed to pay my team overtime. There were no funds to paint or decorate or to purchase preventative maintenance contracts for the equipment. I was scrutinised if I bought a $20 birthday cake for a team member. I took my grievances to higher level managers at every opportunity that I could, but I couldn't seem to make that change. And so the constant battle to affect change just wore me down over the years. And my husband was tired of listening to my complaints. And he told me that I had two choices, you know, either put up with it or leave it. But putting up with it was against my values. And for the first time in 15 years, I decided to explore my options externally. And I was 38 years old at the time. And that's when I decided that I could do this and that I could run my own you know, laboratory. You know, I had a vision for a laboratory and what I've been able to prove is that spending money on employee benefits and premises and equipment reaps the rewards. And we've been able to do that successfully at EnviroLab. Well, fantastic. What, what a story. And so you've, you've made this exciting, I imagine, jump to starting your own company. <laughs> what does EnviroLab do? And at this time in your life, what was the vision that you had for what it would become? Okay, that's an interesting question. I don't know what I knew was going to happen with EnviroLab, but initially we focused on environmental testing of soil and water and our specialty was you know, rapid turnaround time and routine testing. And the routine testing provides much needed funds for growth. But through our strategic growth and all our team's efforts, we've expanded the testing services organically and through the acquisition of MPL and LabTech. And we've added things, you know, in addition to the routine soil and water testing, 
testing a portfolio now includes testing for air and microorganisms, hazardous materials, workplace exposure, drugs, agrochemical and veterinary medicines, formulations and product development. You know, what I didn't know that we were going to do is like we're moving down this path of doing more research and more innovative things. And in 2017, EnviroLab, along with two innovation partners, were awarded a $2.8 million CRCP government-funded research grant. The grant facilitates cooperation between industry and research institutions to develop new technological solutions. So collaborating between industry and academia obviously has its challenges because we have different ways of doing things. But overall, it ended up being a successful and fruitful partnership and the initiative was considered a success by the government. Our vision now now that we know more as well, is to move further into research and development, but still uh, expanding our core services because that's what provides the income. And now you're, you're also paying this forward by starting a career development program at EnviroLab with a real focus on training up the future workforce leaders. What are the skills that you're trying to help build and support in these younger employees? So we've run a um, work experience placement program for high school students and university students at EnviroLab and the work experience ranges from two days to three months with the most common time frame being about two weeks. And I think this is born out of the fact that I came from uh, having a sandwich background degree and there's really not much uh, opportunity. But unfortunately, two weeks is not enough time to get real hands-on experience. But what it does provide is an overview of various testing and techniques conducted at the laboratory. And we also find that some people just get some basic social interaction skills that's important, especially around communication in the workplace and an understanding of the fundamentals, calibrations and traceability and compliance. For example, dotting the I's and crossing the T's are also key skills, which then leads to troubleshooting technical problems with sample analysis or solving logistical issues so that we can achieve optimal customer service. But another key area is empathy and emotional intelligence you know that's required a leadership role and we find that's not easy to teach but you know using mentoring and the use of HR tools we can guide our future leaders to work more effectively with their reports and and peers and allow staff to excel. Yeah I think it's a common theme that we're hearing is that competency what you know is definitely important but also who you are and how you act are equally important skills Mm -hmm. in the modern workforce. So you recently served as the New South Wales branch president for the RACI. And one of the things that you picked up upon in this time is the reduced membership from industry. Were there any strategies that you tried or perhaps thoughts that you've had about how to connect industry and academia a little closer together through our professional chemistry bodies? Well, I think increasing industry membership in the RSU has been a a topic of many discussions. I don't think that we've solved any problems, but collectively we're still working on, you know, building more relevance of RSCI for industry. You know, I'd I'd like to see a continuing professional development program introduced into or, you know, or further developed into the RSU, and I think that will make a, a big difference. Excellent. And finally, to end up today... As a senior leader in in this field, what do you see as the next two to three big challenges that Australia's chemists will need to solve? Mm, That's an interesting question. From my perspective, I think minimising the impact that we have on the environment, even the laboratory setting, we need to reduce the use of disposable items such as pipette tips, plastic packaging, specimen containers. 
And uh, also I think it's important to keep building women's skills or helping them to stay in the workforce so that the gender ratios are more equal in senior roles because we're finding it an area that needs a lot of improvement. Fantastic. So lots of lots of exciting areas coming up for Australia's younger chemists to get stuck into in future years. Thank you very much, Tanya, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure and all the best for EnviroLab and its future journeys. Thank you. So, what can we learn from reflecting on these three journeys towards leadership? Did we uncover the magic formula that supercharges a career and boosts you into a leadership position? Well, probably not, as our three guests each had very different pathways to reach their senior positions. But there did seem to be four common themes which kept popping up as Francis, Daniel, and Tanya told us their stories. These themes can be summarized as what you know who you know, who you are, and how you act. What you know involve developing a passion and a skill set, which you then make visible to others to help navigate your career and to overcome barriers. Who you know included developing your professional networks, finding a great mentor, and in time, paying these experiences forward and becoming a mentor to the next generation yourself. Who you are is recognized as increasingly important in modern leaders. Developing a clear understanding of the way you think and react to different situations, then having the confidence to be authentic and let your natural style and personality shine through in the workplace. And finally, how you act. Building the courage to take bold steps, communicating your thoughts and visions clearly, and most importantly, putting into practice all of those great ideas to impact the world around you. And that's it for our first episode of Chemically Speaking. Don't forget to subscribe to listen to future episodes on Apple, Google, or Spotify podcasts, or indeed, wherever you get your podcast from. Better yet, write us a review or jump on the website and get in touch at www.raci.org.au backslash chemically speaking. I'm Matt Griffith, and I'll be back to you with a new episode in March looking at how Australia's chemists are dealing with the problem of plastic waste. Until then, I hope your days are brightened by a little tweak of chemistry.